0: Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places.
1: I realised that some of my dissatisfactions with my life in the place I'd been living before were my character traits that I moved with and rediscovered, and I think that that was quite a shock for me.
0: Holidays, travel, relocation. When we look to get away from it all, we're as much wanting to escape ourselves as we are a location. We're so influenced by the places we inhabit, we become shaped and moulded by them. But we are also influenced by the people around us, those who know our stories see us in a certain way, and our sense of identity becomes trapped in their understanding of us, making it hard to escape certain flaws, or to reinvent ourselves. When the going gets tough, or when life has become a drag, Breaking away from our environments and the people in them can feel critical. The truth is, though, that often people bring their shortcomings with them. In the novel Berlin, the character Daphne Ferber arrives in the German capital for a fresh start, not expecting to run into more drama than she left behind. Out tomorrow, this is a stunning debut novel from the book's author, B. Setten, my guest today. Chapter 1. Not so unreliable. As Daphne gets to grips with everything that a new city has to offer, making friends, overcoming the pitfalls of online dating in a foreign language, one night something strange, dangerous and entirely unexpected intervenes. I have no doubt that Daphne will be labelled as a classic unreliable narrator by some reviews, deliberately deceptive or unintentionally misguided but I can't say that I agree. As any 20-something who sees life through their own self-absorbed lens, she couldn't be more authentic. Her faults, her lies, her deceit, her honesty about her dishonesty, it just feels real. So what was the inspiration behind Daphne?
1: Well, it's funny because in the process of writing Berlin. The first thing that came to me was the setting, and then the second thing that came very, very strong was the voice. So I had a sense of Daphne and her voice long before I knew what would happen to Daphne, and she inspired me. Um, you know, I was inspired to write about a character of her age because at the time I was living in Berlin and I was a, I was around a lot of people in their early twenties, which is you know that's an age group that I love, and you know I, I have fondness for Daphne, but. I really think people around that age, often, you know, trying to figure themselves out, which means that they're quite self-obsessed, and they're also quite tortured. So they seem to kind of have a lot of self-hatred at the same time. And I was really interested in this strange duality of people who are quite narcissistic and think of only of themselves and who they're going to be and who how they should dress and what is my life going to be, and then at the same time hate themselves. And and I thought that kind of self-obsession is something, you know, that sort of paradox is quite funny and interesting. And so I wanted to write about this character who's sort of deeply self-absorbed, um, but who has a lot of problems with how she, you know, with what she feels
0: towards herself. It's really interesting that you use the phrase self-obsession, because there's a sense that people of that age are existing in a hinterland between being a teenager and being a grown-up right you, there's a there's a window isn't there of an opportunity where you kind of you're an adult but you're not fully grown up yet yes. and, and and therefore the opportunity to make mistakes is one that will never really come back so you've kind of got to go for it haven't you in in, in this hinterland years
1: yeah absolutely I think I think in some ways particularly Daphne you don't have a huge amount of responsibility so sometimes the stakes of the things you do are quite low, yet you do have the autonomy and power of an adult, which leads to sort of these interesting disasters around that age, I think. Which I mean, they, are, they do tend to be recuperable, but it is like suddenly, you know, children having total freedom. And I really remember that, you know, being 22 and being like, I can do exactly what I want and thinking that was totally crazy and irresponsible of the world to allow me total freedom.
0: And probably easier to do that in a city like Berlin rather than somewhere like London, which is as expensive as hell, right?
1: Yeah, I just don't think that you. I think Berlin's really a novel that takes place in idle time nearly entirely. And it's something that I reflect a lot upon with my friends. You know, now I spend a lot more time in London. When I was living in Berlin, and I think that's still the case when I go and visit, I can text someone at any time of the day on any day of the week and be like, want to meet up? And they'll say, yeah, coming. Because I mean, they work where they're all freelancing. Or they're like forever students. All my friends will be doing master's degrees there for like seven years. Um, you know, it's changing. The city's becoming more expensive, but people can afford to chill and do nothing. Whereas in London, I don't think you can. Those kind of mistakes are not affordable. You know, because the rents are too high. You wouldn't spend any of your time doing nothing in London. I mean, if you were doing that, it would be it would be truly terrifying because you just you have to work. All my friends in London work constantly.
0: I thought when. I read the back cover and I read the press release and I started to read the opening to the book. I had a sense as to what type of book it would be and I was proven completely wrong because you took me on a whistle-stop tour of several different genres. And I really, really enjoyed that. There is a sense the way you've set the book up and the character of Daphne up, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about her, that would give you a sense that this is a very, well-drawn and well-crafted coming-of-age story about a woman in a brand new city and i got the sense really really quickly that actually it's not forget that this is about this incredibly well-drawn character who you deliberately i assume give her the capacity and the ability and the free reign to lie to cheat to be a bit manipulative with herself with everyone else and it's an absolute tour a force of how you create a leading character that does things that you're not necessarily expecting she's pretty sassy isn't she you know if if, if she if she existed i reckon she'd be she'd be pretty clear about telling you what she thought right
1: yeah i mean it, it's very it, that's it's so interesting i think it's funny, I think um, in terms of what's conscious and unconscious in writing is quite a hard thing to say because you act on instinct. You know, I wasn't sort of, des- des- I never designed the character. I sort of got to know her as I was writing. And then I'd go back and I'd say, you know, I'd look at some dialogue and I'd say, oh, she'd never say that now that I know her better. So there was some aspect of it that was deliberate, but it was it was a lot of instinct driving me. You know, what I was interested in with Daphne and what I think is interesting about her is that she... You know, as you've said, she's incredibly honest about how dishonest she is and about her bad behavior. And she is, you know, she's quite sassy. She's, she's a, you know, she has this wry humor. She's sort of always laughing at everybody, including herself. But I think she's just very realistic, you know. And so when I've had this response, she's an unreliable narrator, I understand why people are saying that. You know, people say she's classically the unreliable narrator, but part of me when I hear that is like well what kind of people do you hang out with what kind of person are you am I so morally corrupt that she seems utterly ordinary to me there's something so um, puritanical in people's response to Daphne because I'm like look at the world around you people are clearly not you know sort of pure-hearted and people don't live in a way that their intention lines up with their action perfectly that's the complexity of being human you know we Often fall short of the standard we know we ought to meet, and I think Daphne often knows what the right thing to do is. She's not morally blind, but she's driven by a series of complex forces, and so she doesn't do the right thing. And she lies, and then she comes clean about it. But you know, I think lying's a lot more common than people think it is. You know, lying is such a strong word; we've really inherited that as something that's highly immoral, but we do it all the time.
0: I think what we do. Well, I won't speak for for anyone else, but I'll I'll certainly speak for myself. I think you present a version of yourself depending on the situation that you find yourself in. And of course, every individual is many, many things. You're never the same person on any given day for any number of reasons. And, and I found her to be entirely reliable and authentic because, you know, just little things like, she describes herself as a non-smoker with the lovely caveat that, well, that depends on whether I fancy the person that might be offering me a cigarette or something like that. You know, I think those little touches like that really lifted her. She would make a point of coming back and saying, actually, I didn't really tell you the whole truth there. And and there are many reasons for that. So, yes, I think in a way it's a shame that you will probably see a a fair amount of that um, be in in the reviews about her being, an unreliable narrator. And I think that writers need to ask themselves, you know, very clear questions because we're trying to create deeply interesting and layered characters. If she were completely honest all of the time and all things to all people all of the time, I kind of I wouldn't have finished it, I don't think. I, I yeah. finished it because I, I loved her and yeah. I loved reading about her and waiting to see how she would screw something up next, you know?
1: Yeah. What what inspired me as well um, with Daphne is this thing that I've really noticed in my life is it's much easier to see people around you, you know, like my friends, for example, they might take part in some kind of self-destructive behavior that they're not fully aware of. But in other people, you see it so clearly. And then in yourself, you do start seeing it clearly, especially if you move abroad. What happened to me when I moved to Berlin is that I realized that Some of my dissatisfactions with my life in the place I'd been living before were my character traits that I moved with and rediscovered, and I think that that was quite a shock for me. But I really see that people struggle to see themselves clearly. It's impossible to see yourself objectively, and I think in some ways that is what Berlin is about. It's Daphne is attempting to see herself in a clear mirror, despite all the smoke and mirrors she puts in her way. She is trying to have some kind of self knowledge that's very elusive. Ultimately, maybe impossible to get. I don't think you can ever see yourself totally clearly. There's that saying, you know, seeing yourself through a glass darkly. And so I think in some ways, if it's a journey to, every, to anything, it's a journey to attempt to see herself fully, which I don't think any of us truly do.
0: Behind the spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now, For the second time, we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Our writing competition is back. In series three, we set you a writing challenge based on the lessons we've uncovered on this show. We broadcast the two winning entries at the midpoint of series four. This time, we're setting you a new challenge. Over Series 4 and Series 5, we followed the preparation of adventure athlete Kaz Lander, as she and her partner prepared to row unsupported around the coast of Great Britain. Remind yourself of what that challenge might feel like by listening to the two episodes in Series 4 and the bonus episode in Series 5. Then, in no more than a thousand words, try to bring that challenge to life. Two characters, one ocean rowing boat and the vast coastline of Great Britain. With that backdrop, and your own imagination, feel free to go wild. At the end of the series, we'll pick a winner. We'll pay one writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of Series 6, and we'll also donate the same amount to Kaz's chosen cause, the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity. But now, back to the show. Chapter 2 the Daphne filter. Is it really a trip to Cambodia if you didn't see Angkor Wat? Did you actually enjoy Paris at all if you didn't get that selfie in front of the Eiffel Tower? The expectations of others are often forced upon us when we're planning to travel, particularly as social media enforces this must see, must do culture. People will invariably tell you what an amazing time you're going to have, they tell you what to do. What to see, as if the hope is to relive their own experiences vicariously through you. But when you're faced with the realities of being in another place, all that hype can make you wonder if you're doing it wrong. Because life isn't a series of incredible moments. Anxieties, fears, boredom, they're all still a part of it. And this comes through so clearly in Berlin. This amazing experience Daphne should be having is also littered with the utter day-to-day boring monotonous ephemera of daily life.
1: I think this is something that's always existed, you know, our projections of places and life versus the reality of what it's like in its grainy fine detail, but I think social media has made this much worse. So, you know, now if someone goes to Berlin, there will be sort of 10 stock pictures of the Berlin experience. Everyone will like it and say, "Oh yeah, that's what it's like." And then you'll go to Berlin, And in order to feel like you've had a good time in Berlin, you'll take the same pictures. And we all sort of feel reassured that our impressions of the world are real. Um, And I feel like I did feel that frustration when I went, I mean, not only in Berlin, I just felt that frustration, especially when you're like in your early 20s, there's an incredible hype around what that age should be like, you know, like having a huge amount of fun, partying, the time of your life, best years of your life, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think Daphne kind of came for me, she occupied that gap between what people expected of Berlin and what it really was. And she sort of allowed me to occupy that space with a little less shame over how it really was. But I mean, something that you said, you know, I think in terms of the the nitty gritty of life, that's something that, um, yeah, I think when people speak about Berlin, they're very rarely going to think about, okay, well, Where you're gonna live and how you're gonna carry that stuff between locations, and I think that's an issue everywhere. But in a location that has so much sort of glamour, so you know, dark glamour associated around it, you're not imagining, okay, well, do I have to go to a K or again and that kind of stuff. I think that's something I really grappled with in terms of growing up, because I always expected adulthood to be challenging, but I expected it to feel hard in a way that was meaningful, and I think that is the challenge of adulthood, is coming to terms with the real stakes of what your life is going to be and what the issues are going to be. And the fact that it will be hard in a way that I had, you know, it's hard in a way I hadn't expected. And I think that's another thing in the book, you know, I think Daphne throughout the book is trying to, you know, at first having that sort of immature rejection of the stakes of her life and being like, I hate going to the supermarket and I have to do it every single day. And it's so meaningless. And it means, you know, and I hate it. And then, well, I mean, I think the aim is is eventually to learn to take the stakes of your real life seriously. Otherwise, you're always going to feel quite depressed about life.
0: Yes, because we get told, don't we? And and your points about social media are really well made. B, but we get told, don't we? You know, hashtag don't sweat the small stuff. And <laughs> and actually, when you take a take a step back and you go, well, actually, the small stuff that that is being a grown up. That is what it's about. It is about the tiny details that get on your nerves. You know, if I, if I had time to think about living my best life, I I, I wouldn't have any food in the house, you know. So right. this the notion of the reality of being an adult and this sort of romanticized version that you get as a teenager and you think, oh, wow, when I can do whatever I want, things will be amazing. And, and when you can do whatever you want, all of a sudden you've got responsibilities and it isn't amazing in in any way. And you realize that that actually is the biggest trick we were we were we were taught, you know, by by adults is that your life is going to be amazing. And when you get there, your life is your life. And the small stuff is a part of that, right? And it's and it's, it's so much a part of that that there isn't any time for anything else, is there?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. I really remember having, you know, I don't get, I don't have this feeling so much anymore, but when I was in my early 20s, I was constantly feeling like extremely betrayed by all the adults in my life. I was like, you guys, why didn't you tell me? Why as adults do we create this strange mystery around the state of adulthood that we keep from children? I mean, maybe it's actually nice to do that. You know, I don't know. I haven't had the experience of being a parent. But I remember sort of growing up and being like, you guys make it seem so mysterious and interesting. You know, I never did. I never knew what my parents did at work, concretely. They sort of disappeared to the office. And I was like, wow, they go into this shadow world. I can't wait to have access to that. And I was like, this is boring. So boring. But I think the other thing is that the subject of social media is that it's funny because people take photographs of everything now and you know post everything but because of the filter of social media and the way that it's framed and the way it's written about it still doesn't honor or recognize those small parts of life you know i don't think that social media gets any nearer to representing and honoring real life however much people post you know i feel like social media is sort of an obsessive capturing of moments but it does not honor Or give value to the small, modest parts of life that are really, really important parts of being a human being. And that's why I find social media kind of so alienating,
0: to be honest. I wonder if what you've actually done is created a Daphne filter that everybody could use you know, in their life, it's almost as if here's what, here's the social media post. And then when we run the Daphne filter over, it, actually, it's crushingly banal and, you know, day-to-day suffocating claustrophobia, <laughs> rather than it being an amazing, oh, look, there's another shot of someone on Onto Den Linden, you know, great, yeah. I I've only seen 10 of those today.
1: Yeah. And even this trend, there's a new trend on social media being like showing it how it is, no filter. But even that is done through such an aestheticizing voice that it's, if anything, more distant. I mean, and then there's another question, you know, perhaps social media doesn't exist to represent reality. Maybe we want it to be an escape, but I think people live, sort of let that lens shape how they'll talk about experiences. Like, I've had experiences, for example, of, of going to events with friends, going to concerts and things like that, where You know, we didn't have such an amazing time, but then the sort of social media posts around it make it look like it was so amazing. And then that's how we remember it, which is so perverse. And I've even had it that, you know, I've gone to events with people I barely knew and we took a picture, you know, as a group. And then it's everyone sort of tagging it with hearts like we're all extremely close. And it creates a sort of second layer of reality that, you know, um, maybe comes to replace what you actually experienced. And I don't really know if that's good or bad, actually. Perhaps
0: we spend we spend more time photographing the thing rather than enjoying the thing don't we But maybe Maybe.
1: the thing wasn't enjoyable and photographing you know you get at least get something out of it but I think I think it's a sort of form of intoxication where it means that you don't have to you don't have to face your life you know face on in a sort of square realistic way and I think it means sometimes you could be quite unhappy or quite bored or dissatisfied And you don't change it because you're managing to frame it to yourself in a way that means that you can pretend it's quite good and so i think that it sort of numbs you to the pulse of your life to be constantly recording and curating
0: it i don't understand how on the one hand you can say something like this character is an unreliable narrator and on the other hand it is well known by writers that readers adore characters who make decisions that we fundamentally disagree with. As the writer of this book, you have put Daphne in a whole raft of situations in which she does the most ridiculous things, but in an entirely authentic way. So that's why I keep coming back to she is perhaps the most reliable narrator I have read this year, you know, in terms of the way that she's written, because you've done all of the hard work in creating this authenticity, and yet she still wanders blindly into these train wrecks that we know are coming. Every, mm. Everyone could see it coming apart from her, seemingly.
1: Yeah, but that's the paradox, isn't it? I mean, the number of uber-self-analytical people I know who are totally clueless, it's its so common, you know. I think, like, that definitely is, you know, maybe inspired by a dimension of my character. like. I've studied a lot, I've studied philosophy, all this stuff, you know, all this wisdom for years and years and years. And I make incredibly stupid decisions all the time. And so I think that funny paradox of people who are constantly looking inside themselves to try and, you know, get a deeper grasp of their true essence. And then they're like, totally unaware when it comes to sort of making good decisions. And that is a paradox that I see in people all the time. I think it's quite common.
0: On the subjects of philosophy, you do give her this fake backstory of having a master's degree in this, which she quite clearly doesn't. But I loved the authenticity of her saying, when people find out that you have studied philosophy, they rarely tend to check up and get references because that's almost deemed to be good enough. You've studied philosophy. You are clearly trustworthy. And and actually, the reality is completely different.
1: I mean, it's really funny. I think that is, again, born of my experience of philosophy. I think philosophy is... A hilarious discipline. I mean, you know, of course, it's a very serious one. So, you know, I'm not laughing at all philosophers, because there are some, obviously, some great ones. But um, it is the discipline that is the easiest to make yourself seem clever in without you really knowing what you're talking about, because it has such an incredibly obscure vocabulary, which, you know, it means it's very, very easy to sound very clever in a very short amount of time. And then people sort of you a lot of credit without you having much substance behind your words not all philosophers are like that but i am able to waffle philosophical incredibly well if i want to impress someone and then usually that precludes any further questions i'll just say something about like you know the principle of sufficient reason and that will just end the conversation (laughs) which i don't i mean i don't always want to do that at all but um it is an effective tool for deadening the chat
0: Chapter 3. Writing for the Senses Transporting your reader to a time and place requires more than simply writing for their sight. Smell and taste can be powerfully evocative. They have the unique ability to fire up our memories. Whether it's the meaty breath of the blonde guy, the dirt of the garbage, the meth, the food, the childhood inhaling fine black forest air... B brings our senses alive. A focus on smell and taste is especially important when your character is discovering a new place. We become so accustomed to the places we inhabit that we stop noticing the world around us. So it can feel as though our senses are heightened when we're somewhere new. We're more aware and small details speak more loudly. Daphne's experience of Berlin is governed by all of her senses – just as Bee's was when she first moved to the city.
1: I've actually moved to a few different countries. I lived in America, I lived in Colombia for a year, and Germany, so for Berlin. And every time I've moved, you have this sort of absolutely magic period of about three months where all your senses are incredibly heightened, where you can smell everything. All the noises are unfamiliar. And that's, I think, one of the most special things about moving to a new place. In your everyday life, you grow accustomed to things and you stop noticing. But when you're somewhere new, everything is incredibly resonant and noticeable because it's unfamiliar. And that's something I love. You know, I felt like a day in Berlin when I first moved there felt like it was 72 hours because it was so full of new senses. And I really think when you go to a new place, time dilates and goes much more slowly because you're noticing all these things and having this kind of really pleasant disorientation. And that's something I love about traveling, just the smells that you get. I've also always loved, um, you know, in terms of food and um, that kind of thing, I've always loved novels that describe food. <laughs> I loved, uh, you know, Silvia Plath and The Bell Jar. They're just some absolutely excellent eating passages there. Also, you know, Proust and all the smells and that sort of thing. I think the sensory world has always been really important to me because I love good smells. And so that was just, that was passed through to Daphne.
0: The reason I was asking about senses is because everything that Daphne talks about in the book is littered with sensory overload. Her descriptions of people and of situations are incredibly detailed and the use of smell, you know, you talk to us about the garbage in the street and, and how it's dirty, you know, you talk about You know you can smell strawberries you i can understand what the weed smells like you talk about meth you talk about the black forest air which really made my soul stir because it i i know what you mean by doing that and i think you're right there is this window of opportunity when you first move somewhere that your senses are just on crack right and and you are you're just on the receiving end of so much um information which i thought was really interesting that daphne experiences that and still ends up in multiple car crashes and train wrecks, Mm. you know, because you would have thought that actually, would that make you more sensible, cautious and slow down a little bit? I don't think it would. It was really interesting that she went on that that literal journey of sensory overload and just ended up in this these really difficult situations.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, It's funny. I mean, I don't think she sort of sits in those moments of sensory perception And sort of in a sort of Buddhist way where she just sort of observes, observes them and it brings her a moment of sort of peace. I don't think it's like that at all. I think it's a kind of constant noticing. And, you know, I I imagine her sort of like a nervous bird, like with a, a hawk's eye looking at everything and seeing all of it and registering it. But, you know, I think some of the odd things is like she's so overly aware and quite paranoid about certain things and then blind to some real dangers.
0: I'd like to love to read you something from the ending. We talked earlier about, you know, this notion of live your best life and people projecting the life that they want you to live onto you. Um you use a beautiful phrase which is to choose the outfit best suited to one's soul, which I think is just beautiful as a as a phrase and kind of really made me think that actually she is extremely authentic because that outfit changes depending on what state your soul is in right and and i think that's just a really really nice way of thinking about it without giving too much away if we could see and spend time with daphne now after having read this and seen everything that she's been through and the decisions that she's made the scrape she's got herself into i got the sense reading this that this was very much a race to the bottom Almost rock bottom, if you like, mm-hmm. ground zero, whatever it is. I got the sense from her that she was strong enough to see this through. Mm-hmm. If you could talk to her now, how how do you think she'd be doing?
1: I think she would be doing well. I don't think she. I think she would be similar to who she is. I don't think. I think she reaches a rock bottom in Berlin, and I think that that's a moment of lucidity that she probably learns quite a lot from and I hope that she treasures and stays with for a while, then I imagine she would have gone back into certain other behaviours and possibly come to another moment of confrontation and lucidity, but probably less severe than the first. I think she'll learn from every one of these experiences. And so I'm not particularly worried about her. I think she's on this sort of, she's on a path, and I think it's going to become less agonising as time goes on. There's another aspect to that question, I suppose, is that, you know, Daphne does have an eating disorder in Berlin. I mean, which is, I have not sort of defined what that is, but it's quite prevalent and obvious. I mean, and in some ways, what's interesting about her, and this is another sort of uh, strange paradox in her character, but also in the book, is that on the one hand, you know, it seems like the stakes of the dangers in Berlin are quite low, you know, because she comes from, quite a cushy background she can always go back to her parents house you know she's never in real danger she's sort of playing with danger but never really facing it but on the other hand she has this quite serious illness you know which is the most deadly mental illness there is and so in some ways she doesn't really understand what the true jeopardy is in this story you know she thinks it's sort of these very violent external events that are happening but in some ways it's her own illness and and that's something that you know it was interesting to write about um and so I, I suppose i think maybe that would be something that would have stayed with her but i hope not i think i have hope for what daphne would be doing now i just hope i definitely hope she's having more fun and has become less serious because she was a very serious young adult and i i mean i hope she hasn't lost her spirit but that it's become slightly less sort of self-destructive
0: yes and i i would like to hope she's put the jar of nutella back in the cupboard for, <laughs> you know just for a moment but i think it's fascinating what you say about her her mental state because you're right the situations that she finds herself in are of the day to day there isn't really sufficient jeopardy in those situations to think well it, you know she is completely screwed if this goes wrong mm-hmm. um this is the her this is by no means her last chance and yet the the reason that I found myself turning the pages was that I'm trying to warn her. And of course mm-hmm. I have no mechanism to do that. I am screaming at this book, going, do not, you do not understand what you're doing. You can't be doing and then she goes and does it anyway. Yes. You know, because for her it's completely normal. And I I I worried. I think I I think I said this to you. I worried for her, but it wasn't a fatal fear that mm. I had, but I was really concerned that she did not have the capacity to understand that this seemingly ordinary situation is actually really dangerous.
1: Absolutely. And and I think that's something, you know, that people experience quite commonly. I, I think watching the experience of love, you know, loving someone who is self-destructive or of having a relationship with someone who's self-destructive is incredibly difficult because Daphne is an autonomous person. You cannot control what she does. And yet, You know, you might care for her in some way and watch this sort of spectacle uh, of self-destruction. I mean, hopefully an entertaining one, but it's something that's quite painful um, in life and and in in the book. And that's something I wanted to create this sort of this sense of like (laughs) everyone. I mean, not everyone, but many people are quite self-destructive and have these kind of sort of difficult covert behaviors that they engage in. And having a relationship with that person can be quite difficult because We can't have these interventions. We can't save people. You know, Daphne has to save herself. And that's something that I found really hard as I was writing her, because I also had that same strange impulse of wanting to step into the page and being like, just sit down and, you know, have a meal and chill out and, you know, hang out with some people. Um, And you can't do it.
0: And stop texting your ex. Yes. And and rarely, be does an episode of this show go out without... The notion of self-destruction coming up in terms of its relationship to character and i i'll share with you what i what i share with the listeners all the time is that i think every single person has the capacity for self-destruction within them yeah the only difference is the extent to which they have some form of control or lever or break that limits their own end game if, if you like and when you see a character like daphne who has not got the requisite self-awareness and self-control, and there are two—that's two things there. You know, it's the control that she doesn't have. She also doesn't know she doesn't have the control because she doesn't necessarily have the self-awareness that she needs to stop putting herself in danger. And so, I think you—you—you you, you have done a very entertaining and skilled job of looking at the notion of of self-destruction. And the reason I know that is because I am screaming at the book. And Mm. and and thinking, you know, don't. And it would have been very easy for you to have imposed your own moral code on her. Mm Um, and that's really the, you know, the trick of a writer is to go, you know, you are not your character. Your character is your character, and actually, your character will do a very good job of telling you whether the line you've given them is an authentic one or not. And and that's why, you know, I come back to this: she is an entirely reliable narrator because she is the same as everybody is, and she wears. different outfit depending on what state her soul is in at any given time those people listening to this episode on the day of broadcast will have the luxury of being able to buy this book which is out tomorrow berlin is an absolutely stunning debut be certain it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much
1: thank you so much thank you for having me
0: Conclusion, a massive thank you then to B. Seton for today's episode and to recap, what have we learnt? The further through the writing process you are, the better you get to know your characters. Sometimes you'll look back at moments in your book that no longer feel right or in keeping with their personality. To craft an authentic character, re-evaluate their actions and rewrite where necessary social media has the ability to reframe our memories of an event. We can look back with a smile at something we didn't actually enjoy in the moment. How might your character live in a world of their own illusions, and what might be the consequences? And finally, try writing for all the senses, and don't fear overdoing it. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our new exclusive live and in-person residency at the Show Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated, and they'll put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing.
1: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk